0: Brilliant. So last week, uh, if you haven't listened online, um, I commend it to you, James preached um, on, uh, he, the, the title of the talk um, was, was about playing a different game uh, and uh, it's definitely worth listening to. I want to pick up on that theme, this idea of playing a different game and the concept of um, a surrendered life to God as part of that. And uh, this morning I'd love to look at, um, from the story of Abraham, some more themes that emerge from what it looks like to play a different game and what it looks like to have a surrendered life. We are in Genesis chapter 22. So if you want to look that up in the Bibles, either on your phone or on in your chairs around uh, the church, are, it's going to come on the screen. Um, and I'm going to read uh, chapter Genesis 22 to us. I will surely bless you and make you our descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Bathsheba, and Abraham stayed in Bathsheba. Um, We don't need to do that one. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder how easily you said thanks be to God after that one. Um, this is a a, a very well known reading, and and, it, and I it's a not a very well liked reading. So, um, when I was writing the sermon, I was listening to I decided to listen to the album Highway 61 Revisited. If you know the album, Bob Dylan and the song Highway 61, in which Bob puts into Abraham uh, what he thinks Abraham uh, would have said. So basically, the Lord says, you know, go and sacrifice your son, and in Abraham instead of just going yes goes what. Um, and, and there's this kind of, and, and Bob Dylan puts into Abraham what we imagine should be normal actually this sense of hold on a second what's going on here it's one of I think the best examples of the bits of the Old Testament that lots of people say I don't like the God of the Old Testament is that fair? But, you know, this is like what kill your only son testing Abraham um, if we, um, if, we want, if somebody described it one commentator described it as one of the bits that if he had a scissors he would like to take his scissors to his bible and in preparation for this, what I've, what I've found is that actually this is something that lots of Christians and, of course, lots of non-Christians, this story, it's one that a lot of people seem to know about, even people who don't come to church, and it's one, by and large, the people I've spoken with in the run-up to this sermon have gone, I don't really like that. So, so if you don't really like it, strap yourself in, uh, we're going to find out why we should really like it. Um, and it's essentially this, in that actually, I wonder if it's possible that in in our first reading of it and in our first reactions to it, which actually I think are quite good because they show something of our humanity, we miss what's really going on and we miss what's really about. So the first task is, is a demolition task. Um, if you think about your mind for a second, your mind is not, it's not a vacant lot, it's not an empty lot. Um, it isn't even when you're born, because actually you've been taking stuff in, in the womb and in the sounds that you hear. Our minds aren't vacant and empty, and they're they're already kind of plots of land that have been built on. And and so to talk about this passage, I'm I'm probably going to, you know, a plot of land where you already have some form of building on it. And one of the things one needs to do sometimes in these moments is is kind of examine the building that we need, that is there, and work out whether or not we need to take it down. So friends of mine have um, bought a house um, and um, I thought there was nothing wrong with the house, but they flattened it to build an even bigger one, because that's kind of, you know. But in, but in order to build their new house, they had to take the old one down. And I think that there are um, two really big misunderstandings that we can suffer from that, that sometimes mean that we get passages like this wrong. Two big misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding is um, that we, have, we actually have a wrong view of God that our understanding of who God is, is slightly skewed. And so therefore, we very easily fall into, how dare he do that? Um, That's cruel, that's mean, I'm not into that kind of God. And if we have that kind of initial reaction, I wonder if we misunderstand the God who is revealed in the church through scriptures and primarily in Jesus we need to look at God's nature and his character in context and filter everything through that. I once worked for a man in a, I once worked for a man. I once, I once had a job. Anyway, I worked for this gentleman who was known for basically not being very nice. So meetings with him were very difficult. Uh, um, I once went to a, a, a restaurant for a work meeting with him where he, he, he bullied his own daughter who ran a company for him. This was this guy's kind of you know, emails were short and sharp and generally you were in trouble. Uh, And then there was this one moment where he was very, very nice to me. Now, in that moment, I didn't go, I'm not going to name the guy, I didn't go, oh, Joe Bloggs is one of the nicest people I've ever met because, you know, I bumped into him in the corridor and he was really nice to me and asked me some really good questions about somebody I was working with. I didn't. I went, in context, because of my understanding of how this guy operates, I wonder what he's up to. Does that make sense? Yeah. So... The God who is revealed to us in scriptures and primarily in Jesus is a good, loving creator who wants relationship with us. He's the God who has called Abraham and said, through you, I'm going to be a blessing to the nations. He's the God, if we think back a couple of weeks ago, has promised that he will make it happen. Um, He is the God who will keep, as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, keep chasing after God's people when they keep getting things wrong and wrong. He is the God who says, I want mercy. I don't need to do things. I want your your hearts. He's the God who promises a new heart. Um, He's the God who comes to us in Jesus and says, I have not come to condemn the world but to save the world. And he's the God who, is, who has poured out his Holy Spirit so that we may know his love, his joy, his peace, his kindness, his patience, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. And he is the God who is coming again in Jesus and will put all things right and wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more tears, there will be no more sorrow, and we will be with him forever. If that is my understanding of him, when I read a text like this, I need to filter it through that and not straight go to the, oh, I don't like this God of the Old Testament. I need to go, the God who is love and just and mercy and goodness and rescue. I wonder what he's up to. Okay? If your first reaction is, I don't like this and I don't like how God is being portrayed, I wonder if you misunderstand him. Secondly, secondly, Oh no, I forgot a point. Job forty-two five. It's Job. What does anybody know what Job says at the end of all of Job? Uh, we're going to get there in Bible in one year. I, have, I can't remember. I, can't remember all. I am doing Bible in one year. We've done Job, haven't we? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have done it. We have done it. It kind of my I my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. When I encounter him and when I realise who he is, things change. Have I misunderstood God? Secondly, have I misunderstood Scripture? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. But I wonder how often we make this book a moral code for how to live our life. It's like a Haynes manual for a good Christian life. And so therefore, when we read the book, we're always looking for the what I must do. And that's not a bad thing. But if that's our kind of default when we come to it, this is a book, this is a guide to life. When we come across texts like this, it's a real problem. Because it seems to say, if God says, kill your son, kill your son. Although, actually, it doesn't say kill your son. We'll get there in a moment. But, but if, you, if you read it as, a, as primarily a moral text, and, and in modernity, we were really bad at this in terms of understanding how it was put together and whatever, we're going to miss what's going on. This is a love story. This book is a love story and, it's a, and a biography. And interestingly enough, it's not my biography or yours but it's Jesus's. This is a love story about God who loves us so much that He is going to do all it takes to get us back. And it has lots of different elements to it. It has poetry, it has prophecy, it has story, it has teaching, and it has Proverbs. And when we read it, we need to read it knowing that it's about someone and how he relates to us, and then filter it through that. Deep down, I think the gut response to a text like this that says, I don't like this, is a gut response that says, I am still in charge. I am in charge, and I get to say what I like and I don't like about God and about how he operates. So, I might not have demolished stuff, but hopefully I've given it a good kicking, um, do you misunderstand God? Do you misunderstand the Bible? If you do, there's, this isn't just the first. There are loads of passages you're going to struggle with. Um, moving on, what I think this story shows us, it shows us that surrendered lives will trust that God will provide no matter what. Surrendered lives will trust that God will provide no matter what. And the marks of how they trust are in the text and in who Abraham is. The first point is this, um, that surrendered lives will trust God with all his blessings. God invites us to trust him with all that he has given us. All that he has given us. Psalm 116 in 12 to 18, um, Eugene Peterson's message uh, version translates it like this, what can I give back to God but the blessings he pours out on us? There's a moment in, uh, in, in, one of the, uh, in one of the U2 tours where all the lights come down, and as they go into where the streets have no name, which if you didn't know is a song about America and heaven, because U2 can write like the Bible does on different planes, um, Bono stands in the middle of, of the auditorium, all the lights go down, and you just hear his voice, and he says, What can I give back to God but the blessings he has poured out on us? I will raise the cup of salvation. It's a starting point of the the Jewish faith and of our faith that actually all our life is made up of these blessings that God has given us and that actually our response to Jesus is we've got nothing to give him except all that he has given us. Abraham has been invited in this text to trust God with the biggest blessing he has ever received, Isaac. Now, I'm not trying to say this is easy. And I'm not trying to say it's, a not, it, it, it's, it's not an odd request. I imagine it's not easy, and I imagine it is an odd request. But the text is very clear that, that there is an invitation by God to, to trust him with this biggest of all blessings. His son who will be the fulfillment of all that God wants to do. Everything that comes from God is good, and he is in charge. And can I hold it with a light hand so that if he wants it back, I would say yes. So much of our lives, we live in our own strength, and so much of the blessings of our life we think might be down to us. Have you ever thought about the randomness of where you were born, when you were born, who you were born to, the school that you went to, if you went to an okay school, the friends that you made, when you made those friends? the education you had the people who made a difference in your life the people who stepped in randomly the jobs you've done the things you've done well at work the favor you found at work all these have you ever thought that they are blessings from god or maybe you have a default that actually it's stuff you've done yourself i worked hard at whatever it was and therefore this have you ever thought about the home that you live in is a blessing from god The time that you have. um, The relationships that you have. Actually, the relationships you don't have. Have you ever thought that all of this is a blessing from God? And have you ever thought that God invites you not to give it all up, but to hold it lightly in case he has a plan for it? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking there were two things. So the kind of slight... Um, one was um, the home that my wife and I live in uh, is an obvious blessing in, in that um, we couldn't, A, afford it, B, uh, well, probably if we we're doing all jobs, we could, but that's another story. Um, we couldn't afford it, and it's not ours, but we get it as part of our job. That's an obvious blessing. But actually, the one that we live in now has space. And when we moved into it, we felt God call us to open up a home for people to live with us Now, we are known for being quite good with people, but the one thing that we'd uh, never done in all of our married years was have people live with us because whilst we're being quite good with people, I personally like to keep generally people, not not at an arm's length, but enough distance away from my introverted self. And so the idea of having somebody come in and live in my house kind of slightly panicked me, uh, especially because the other places and it exposes um, one's parenting and one's marriage to kind of 24-7 examination. And yet God said, actually, if you've got a house that's too big for you, you need to be able to have people live with you. And there are two things I want you to know. that It has not been easy. Actually, some of the biggest heartbreak in the last 10 years of our life have come because of people who have lived with us. But it's also been amazing. So some of the deepest relationships, some of the biggest growth, and some of the strengths in our kind of, I think, how we are as a family in our marriage have come because we saw this house as a blessing, and we follow what God wants us to do. The other big challenge the Lord has spoken to me this week, I, I'm not I'm going to more than for the week, I'm not going anywhere long term, so don't get your hopes up, was, was this 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 church has become a massive blessing to us, um, to Wayne and Wendy. Uh, who we are becoming as a people, what God is doing is a massive blessing. And, and knowing people who do my job, I have to hold all of you lightly because there will come a time, hopefully not soon, or maybe some of you are going, hopefully very soon, where the Lord will say, I need you somewhere else. And and God wants to use us and use the blessings of our life to extend his kingdom. And if we hold them like that, it doesn't do us or them or the kingdom any good. People who have surrendered to God because they don't misunderstand him and know that he is good will hold the blessings that he has given lightly for his purposes. Do I believe that God is good enough and loving enough and kind enough and Lord enough that I would trust him with everything? Surrendered lives trust God with the blessings he has given them. Surrendered lives trust God in their culture. So God invites us to trust him and not culture. Those who have surrendered their lives are called to live differently. The Greek word for church is ecclesia, which literally means called out. So as church, we have been called out of our culture to live differently. We have been made a holy people. Holy means set apart. Paul talks talks about us living as aliens and strangers. Ephesians 4 talks about how actually we look at culture and realize that actually a lot of its thinking is futile and darkened. And we trust God to call us out of culture to live differently to culture. Child sacrifice seems really, really odd. Hands up if you don't think it seems odd. Excellent. It seems really, really odd, doesn't it? Back in the ancient uh, Near East, and in the culture, this is like four, four 5,000 years ago, it wasn't as odd as it seems. Um, gods needed to be kept happy. And one of the ways you kept, in some cultures, one of the ways they kept God happy was to offer an atoning sacrifice, one to make things right. And sometimes in some cultures, that atoning sacrifice would be the eldest child, often the eldest son. So if you were a woman there's a benefit, a massive one, um, will be offered as an atoning sacrifice to keep the gods happy. So this is a very odd request as we read it, but probably not as odd um, in Abraham's day. And I think what's going on here is less less of a kind of God seeing how far he can push Abraham, but actually God teaching Abraham something. Sometimes you have to go through something to a point where you suddenly stop and realize this is completely bonkers to realize it is. And I think that Abraham gets to the point where he's standing there with the knife, probably wondering what's going on, and he sees the ram, that actually the Lord steps in and goes, Abraham, do you see how bankrupt your culture is? Do you see how futile, as Paul would say to the Ephesian church, your culture is in thinking that sacrificing a child could keep a God happy? I think it's a beautiful teaching moment where God invites Abraham Deeper into a relationship of love and trust. And part of that is to say, Your culture, Abraham, is bankrupt. Your culture does things that other cultures will look at and go, What? And we do that. We look back at that and we go, That's completely nuts. And we do that whilst not even thinking about the stuff that our culture does. That's the same. We suffer from, like all cultures, well, cultures in the West, because we've moved from circular views of history to linear views of history. So we look back and we go, we know so much more than them, don't we? And yet there will come a time, I think, uh, when, a, when people will look back at us and go, around the environment, probably, definitely. But actually, I'm going to go on one thing here. I think around abortion, we'll look back at us and go, I cannot believe what they did. So I don't know if, if you want to look up somebody, look up a, a girl called Heidi Crowther. Who uh, is a, She has Down syndrome, and she is campaigning uh, around the the date of um, the point that uh, you are allowed to abort a, a child, a baby in the womb with Down syndrome and and she 's making a point that actually you can push that I think much further than our Sally Phillips, um, whose son has Down syndrome, and um, just saying actually, will there come a time when we will look back and go, "What were we doing when I was ten, I used to go swimming every Thursday. Um, uh, as part of my primary school swimming lessons. And um, there was a girl in my class, and she had an older brother called Johnny, who was 14. Johnny had downs, and Johnny used to come and swim with us. And none of us knew that there was anything different from Johnny, except that Johnny had had a very splashy freestyle, and he was always laughing. And Johnny became a really good friend of mine. And Johnny is a deeply lovely Christian man who's made a massive difference to people's lives. His mum would say at times he's been really difficult and hard to parent, but then she would say her other children have as well. Um, And we live in a culture that says, maybe Johnny shouldn't live. Sometimes the Lord takes us to a place where he reveals to us how bankrupt our culture is, and then says, will you trust me to live differently? And I wonder if that's what's happening in this text. God invites every generation of the church to live as aliens and strangers, uh, to be in culture, to transform culture, not to be sucked into culture, to challenge culture, uh, not just simply to go along with him and to point to him. And key to that is having encountered him and trusted him and surrendered to him that he might know best. Surrendered lives will trust God with their blessings that they've received, they will trust God in the midst of a culture that doesn't understand him. And ultimately they will trust God that he will provide. Uh, this week a pastor whose books I've read and whose church I think is pretty amazing put something up on Instagram and I found myself disagreeing profoundly with him. He said this, he said, my affection for God is the strength of my life. And I remember thinking straight away, uh-uh, his affection for me is the strength of my life his affection for me is the strength of my life back to how you read the bible 2000 years before jesus who is isaac isaac is the promised son he is the hope and fulfillment and future blessing to all nations he is the one who, through him, God is going to bring light to all the nations, restore all things, and make things amazing. Can you imagine the shock that actually when he comes, he might be sacrificed? Where does this story happen? Well, it happens in a region called Moriah. And in, a, in, in the region of Moriah, in many years to come, there will be a city built called Jerusalem. And there, there will be a temple where people will worship God. And in a hill near this future city of Jerusalem and this future temple, the beloved only son, who is the hope of all the nations, straps wood to his back and walks up the hill with his heavenly father. This was written 2,000 years before the Gospels. Do you see where this text might be going? God doesn't ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. And nor is he going to ask you. Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. God himself will take our place. John says, Look up the lamb slain for the sins of the world. His affection for me is the strength of my life. His affection for me enables me to surrender. His affection for me enables me to trust with all the blessings I have received. His affection for me enables me to trust him against my culture. We can surrender and we can trust because he did it first. Would you like to stand and we're going to pray.